G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to the fourth series of This Week in Startups Australia. At the start of every series, we open with an interview with one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs. So in this episode, Twista talks to Catapult Sports Chair Adir Schiffman about what it takes to build a business, go public, and quadruple shareholder value in just 24 months. Then we'll speak to angel investor and startup board director Yvonne Everett. Yvonne will tell us what she's learned from the day-to-day give and take in the boardroom. From the heights of public offerings to the argy-bargy of the board in this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website, and API Days, Australia's largest conference dedicated to the business and technology of APIs. I want to tell a little story about how Twista got started. It seems that our next guest, our first guest for Series 4, was over in the USA and he found himself invited onto Jason Calacanis' very popular This Week in Startups podcast. And now, our guest is Australian, of course, and Jason naturally asked if he might know Mark Pesci. Now, I am not the only person that Jason knows in Australia, but I'm probably the person he's known the longest because we've known each other 21 years. It turns out, of course... The next guest had, in fact, just sat down to a public fireside chat with me at Australia's first Internet of Things conference, and it apparently said a few positive things about my skills as an interviewer. I'm chuffed. I mention this because about 24 hours later, Jason mailed me pretty much out of the blue and suggested that it was time for This Week in Startups to go international, and he couldn't think of anyone he'd rather have a kick it off. So one thing led to another, and here we are, and I finally get to interview a man who has a lot to answer for. Adair Schiffman is the executive chairman of Catapult Sports. Now, if you haven't heard about Catapult Sports, and I'm actually shocked, a lot of Australians have not, you need to know that they are one of the five most successful tech startups to come out of Australia in the last decade. And nearly every elite footballer, both here and in North America, uses their tech to perform their best. So it is with great pleasure and more than a little gratitude that I welcome Adir to This Week in Startups Australia. Welcome, Adir. Nice to sit down with you, Mark. Nice to finally get the chance. This has been on my list, and I just wanted to wait until we had the right moment. So let's just talk about what Catapult Sports does and how it's become the giant that it is today. So, I mean, Catapult is quite misunderstood as a business because the most visible part of Catapult is a wearable technology that elite athletes mostly wear between the shoulder blades and a compression garment or mm. on pads in the case of American football. Right. And so people assume we're a wearable business and we do have a wearable component. But actually what we really are is a SaaS analytics business that has a wearable component that gathers the data that we need in order to make our SaaS work. Because... An, an elite athlete isn't just measurement, it's analysis of what you're measuring from, from what the elite athlete is doing. That's right. So we're capturing pretty close to a 1,000 data points every second on every athlete. Mm. And this is while they train, often it's while they play. In Australia, the entire AFL, NRL, ARU, they're all wearing this technology. Most of them, the AFL, they're all wearing them in-game as well. Mm-hmm. So you know what we're really um, delivering to teams and to players is algorithms and metrics that help them with player welfare. So that means reducing injury, especially soft tissue injury. Mm -hmm. It helps them manage their careers over years. 
It helps them improve their performance and their skills execution. Increasingly, it's being used for tactical analysis Mm -hmm. and tactical decision-making by coaches. Mm -hmm. And what we're starting to see now, uh, and you'll see more of in 2016, is the migration of this uh, data into uh, the consumer sphere. So what I mean by that is fan engagement, broadcast applications. So fans will start to see some benefits and, and gain a deeper understanding of the game based on the some manipulations of the data that we that we do through the course of so this in this in an analogous sense to the worm that we see in political debates exactly so we'll try and make it look a little sexier than the worm and <laughs> uh, but that, that type of thing so I think you know historically um, you know fans have known about us because a lot of them have known that they see players wearing this technology, but actually they'll start getting some some of their own benefits out of players wearing this technology through 2016, 2017. Now, you have completely owned the Australian sporting world, but of course, again, a lot of people don't know how well you've done. So do all of the teams in the NFL now use Catapult? So the majority of teams Majority of teams. The majority of teams in the NBA use Catapult. Okay. So the basketball over there. Um, you know, we, we, we work across... 24 or so sports in about 30 countries. Mm-hmm. We have 750 clients. We are by far the biggest provider of this technology in the world. We invented this technology, so it didn't exist. Well, so, so let's start with there. So where did where's the genesis of this technology from? So the actual tech itself started in a collaborative research centre, which is CRC. So a little, little, I say little, $70 million worth of funding, yeah. government organisation that brought together academia and, uh, and uh, commercial interests. And this one was microtechnology. Mm-hmm. And the two founders of Catapult, Sean Holthouse and Igor Vandergrind, they were involved in that CRC. And amongst various other things that happened in that CRC was a project with the Australian Institute of Sport as a partner using this next generation at the time of microtechnology to try and quantify the performance of athletes. Okay. And at the end of that CRC's lifespan, which ran seven years, as was typical, that technology, what the IP was spun out into a private company, and that private company was Catapult Sports, and that was around 2007. Okay. So the technology's been around for a long time. As a corporate entity, Catapult's been around seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And you've been around for, what, five years yeah, now? Yeah, four or five years, exactly. So when the, when the guys met me, you know, often I'll, I'll say to them, I'll remind them of how how insane they appeared when I first met them. And I kind of felt like they were crazy enough to perhaps be geniuses. And and it turned out to be right. I mean, these are very, very smart guys. You're going to be followed, and I'll leak a little bit. So Yvonne Everett is the interview after you on this episode, and she said that the great thing about talking to startups is you meet interesting people and it sounds like that was your experience yes i mean i did not know what to make of these guys so sport historically is a very hard way to make money in tech it's it's a nightmare frankly wearables so that's hardware it's another nightmare and these guys have tried to bring those two things together and you know i started getting involved a little bit and helping out and seeing what was going on here you know initially they asked me to come on as an investor in a pretty non-executive capacity Mm -hmm. and what i saw was a business that was kind of succeeding despite a number of crazy decisions like not the best financial record keeping and <laughs> right. um, not not really having a sales team. So all of the sales were either referrals or teams that wanted to buy more or people moving and taking it with them. So this is almost like Atlassian where there's no, no, no sales team. No sales team. Yeah. And, and every time I met them, so I started meeting them increasingly frequently, and every time I asked a question, I opened another door, there, there were no skeletons in the closet. There was some other incredible discovery to find in each door, in each closet. And 
you know, that's when I realised I think these guys might have something very special here. We, we've been lucky with timing, though. I mean, you've got to have some luck. Mm. And we've been lucky with timing. Like, there's been a wave that has arisen and we're at the at the middle of concentric circles of, you know, wearable tech mm-hmm. and the quantified self and mm. SAS now. And, yeah. you know, we've been lucky on timing. Yeah. Well, and, and just being able to make all of that affordable. I mean, if you had to build all of this infrastructure yourself and all the analytics and all of that, you, you're talking about a much larger just baseline company than being able to sort of do this incrementally the way you have. That's right. And, and certainly the fact that a lot of this tech was funded whilst it was in the CRC, mm-hmm. the fact that um, at, you know we've got a partnership with um, the CSIRO where we're using a piece of their technology that may have cost double-digit millions of dollars to go and develop, I mean, definitely we're leveraging off um, those kind of academic and institutional relationships that, that these guys have built up over time. So, I mean, it's funny that you don't have all of the ministers trotting through every week or two because you're the example of what the public-private partnership is supposed to bring to the country. Well, Phil Deladakis, who's the Minister of Innovation in Victoria, I mean, he's a tremendous fan. I've known Phil for a very long time. So he's tremendously supportive. But, you know, I do sometimes wonder, you know, we're now a $250 million company on the Australian Stock Exchange. Right. I do wonder why there are not more interested phone calls in our direction. And it's and I guess there's a question here, if it's sport, can it be tech? Is it, is it sort of that there's this one versus the other? Of course, those people have never been in a sports broadcasting booth, which is among the most technologically sophisticated pieces of things that you can get. But I wonder if there's this sense that if it's sport, it's not tech. But all of a sudden, now that we're in the quote-unquote wearables revolution, everyone's having a penny drop moment about that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely truth to that. What for us has been, I think, the real competitive barrier that continues to set us apart is that we are not a tech business. Mm-hmm. We are a business that combines technology, mm-hmm. so wearable and other technology, with sports science. And in fact, bringing those two things together is what creates the algorithms that drive most of the value that is being derived from this technology. And I think that is something that is uniquely Australian. Australia is very special. I mean, the Australian Institute of Sport was the world leader for one decade or longer. That is a sweet spot for us. I think that uh, it's interesting. Of course, a lot of those folks got poached by folks in England, folks in America who wanted to have the kind of talent that we had raised. And we see that today. So as our technology has expanded into the US, you'll see a lot of the strength and conditioning coaches Mm. or a lot of the sports scientists they have Australian accents over in the US. NFL teams, NBA teams, NCAA college teams. You know, this is like this big, great opportunity for Aussie sports scientists to start seeing the world. <laughs> so it's the two things. It's the sports scientists and the baristas. Because the baristas, if you've got an Australian accent in America, <laughs> they want true. you to be their barista. That's true. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista's sponsors, Braintree, code for easy online payments. Developers around the world have used Braintree's V.0 SDK as a simple way to accept PayPal, credit cards, debit cards, and whatever's next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. Using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, but don't take their word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash twista. And we're back. We're talking to Adir Schiffman, the executive chairman of Catapult Sports. So... You listed on the ASX last year. We had Rory Cunningham from the ASX on our show last year. You are now the poster child 
for what a startup can achieve on the ASX. Could you guide us through why you decided to go to the ASX to raise rather than maybe going to a large venture fund or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually listed at the end of December 2014. So I say that because there was a list in the Financial Review of the best performing stocks of, that IPO'd in 2015. Mm-hmm. And we would have been number two, but we missed it by like listing 14 days at the end of 2014. Um, so, I mean, we've got an interesting story on cap raising. So when I joined the business, frankly, it was generating earnings. And we made a decision, which was with some very robust discussions, to move to a SaaS model. Right. Because it would produce a much better long-term business. Right. But when you move to a SaaS model, you basically pay for the full acquisition cost of customers up front. Right. And you build them over time. So you burn out all your cash, effectively. Mm-hmm. So we needed to start raising capital. And two and a half years or so, two years before we listed, so we listed at 55 cents. Mm-hmm. So two years before we listed, we literally could not raise $10 million at the equivalent of nine cents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a... And that was with revenues and customers and everything. Correct. Right. Because we were transitioning to a SaaS model and very smart. So there were some very smart investors that looked at us yeah. and they perhaps didn't believe we'd make it across. And then also what we... Which is weird, though, because you talk to Australian investors and they all want a SaaS company. They don't want a hardware company. They don't want a product company. They want a SaaS company because it's printing money when you get it right. So that's 2016. Yeah. And this was 2013. Okay. And, um, you know, there were, we also discovered the relative shallowness of the um, funding pool mm. at that time as mm-hmm. well. But actually there were some really smart guys that I'm good friends with to this day, mm-hmm. you know, that that it wasn't quite the right investment for them. So we went, so I had to put more money in and we brought some money behind us as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that took us through to this point where we had proven the SAS model and okay. we needed another round of funding to scale up dramatically. Right. We then did a pre-IPO round mm-hmm. and that was in two th- middle of 2014 mm-hmm. and it was a painful process and that was done at, by that stage, it was already, I think it was 30 cents or 35 cents equivalent. And did those investors know that there would be a liquidity event coming right that up? That was the plan. So the plan was to have a liquidity event by the end of 2014. Oh. And it was still even, uh, that's interesting because they doubled their money essentially. when we For the IPO? You listed at 55 pretty, pretty cents. Pretty right? I mean, so they got a pretty healthy discount for getting involved. And a number of these were funds, so that right. we started getting some fund involvement. But that year, year and a half of a gap Mm. just produced a remarkable change in the perception of the business in the marketplace. And then when it came to, so that pre-IPO and IPO, you could virtually consider them a single event. So that was a single event. So why did we decide to do that? So I went to the US, I met all of these VCs, huge, I mean, we, we received inbound phone calls from the founders of very large brand name US VCs, yeah. which is an unusual thing to happen. Yeah. And they all wanted to invest, but their terms were effectively terms such that they would take a minority interest but have effective control. There were things like preference shares, veto rights, and... Our and, and these were non-negotiable. These were, these mostly were non-negotiable. Wow. And our view was, we're not a business that is pre-revenue or is de- actually right. we're, we're a viable business and now we're trying to accelerate growth. Right. This is not to, risk capital in right. that sense. And we don't want to accept those kind of terms. Yeah. And the thing that was attractive to us about the ASX is that we could raise money as common stock, mm-hmm. sitting equally with the stock already held by us and by the investors, mm-hmm. that everyone was in that boat together, mm-hmm. that... Um, we could continue growing the business with a view for the long term. So people can consistently speak about the fact that quarterly reporting on the ASX um, 
make, creates short-term thinking. I totally disagree with that. Actually, I think short-term reporting creates discipline in reporting, which is fantastic and wonderful but this is always for a, these businesses. And this is always an interesting bridge because you will hear startup founders. And I mean, you even heard um, Scott Farquhar and, and, and Mike Cannon-Brooks muttering about this a little bit. They thought that it was going to sort of change things a little bit to have to have the rigor of quarterly yeah. reporting. But you're actually saying, actually, we need to embrace that. We thing. like it, right? I mean, it does create a, somewhat of a workload. Hmm. But what it does is, you know, it focuses... It, so you can't hide problems, right. which is good. They, they bubble to the surface. You keep an eye on them. And, and what it also does is, so why do people want opacity? I'm not telling my secret IP plans to the market. Right. I'm financially reporting to the market and giving a market an update. So I'm not worried about my competitors knowing that. My worry in life is not competitors. It is all the blue sky we have in front of us that we need to keep executing to acquire. Mm. So actually, I think it's been good for us. The capital has been, the investors have been friendly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't, so I think as we speak now, the share price is north of $2. So it's a year later, it's kind of almost quadruple so price. So four to one. Yeah, so probably the investors are not upset, um, but no, it makes, makes the discussions more pleasant. But actually the investors, so the ASX has meant quarterly reporting, which I think adds rigour, right. and because 70-80% of the stock is still in the hands of me, founders, early investors, yeah. we can continue focusing on building the company for the long term. Mm -hmm. And actually I think that this, there's a total misnomer about publicly listing, which is it creates an unmanageable overhead and creates short-termism. I think that is true in some circumstances, but it is not true in all circumstances. And for tightly held, rapidly growing tech businesses, there's a lot of benefit in that. And when we wanted to raise additional money, I mean, we went and raised an extra $5 million to accelerate growth. That was oversubscribed incredibly quickly. So you just did a share issue. That's right. All right. And, and, and you didn't get anyone muttering about dilution or anything like that? No, because, I mean, it was a $5 million raise. The market cap was $150 million plus. So it was okay. minimal dilution. Okay. And it was quick and it was easy. Right. And they're now, you're now worth $250 million, right. so... Everyone's happy, right? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think... Um, there's a lot of options for raising capital. What I, you know, I invest in a lot of startups. So the first question is, do they really need to raise capital? Yes. Don't raise too much capital. Yeah. But I think um, there are different companies at different stages of their growth, and that means that there is not one solution that is suitable for all startups. And for us at our stage of growth, definitely VCs with terms that are quite reasonable at other stages of growth right. were not reasonable for us and the listing was more attractive. So where do, where do you think the disconnect was? Why You, you don't normally think that a uh, VC is going to misread signals like that, or at least they're not supposed to. They're supposed to be tuned to what the stage of the company is and to be able to contract with the company at that stage in growth. And yet it didn't happen in this case. Is it? Is there an Australia markdown? Is there a, well, we've never done sports before, so it's a markdown? No, I don't think so. I think um, actually they love, VCs love the business and we're prepared to pay more money than the IPO price. Okay. So they're prepared to pay more. Um, so the thing is, though, that VCs might have mandate issues. Like, for example, they may need to have preference stock 
in their investments as part of their mandate. Oh, because this is just the deal they have with their investors. Right. So that, okay. that could be the other thing is, you know, I don't necessarily have issues with the concept of preference stock. I think when you're doing a, ra- a round very early in a business, yeah. company is very unproven, yeah. and you want to protect the capital that you're putting in. Yeah. You don't really know the founders. It's appropriate. I just think we were caught in a position where some of those terms, veto rights, etc., were not appropriate for where we were at, and the VCs did not have a great deal of ability to move on them. Okay, so one of the things that we have been noticing is that within the last 24 months, there's been a sea change in Australia and how things are going in startup land. I mean, we now have Blackbird has the $200 million fund, and people are throwing money around now. Do you think that... If you were making the same decision in 2016, 17 as you made in 13, 14, would you have had an option of being able to work locally with VCs that would have given you good terms? And this is a total hypothetical, yeah. but do you think there's been enough of a change around so. that? I think that it definitely it's very different. Even a year later, yeah. a year and a half later, it's very different. I think that the funds that you've mentioned, they really do have money to invest. Finally. They've got some experience. A lot of what we were saying were people that told us they wanted to invest in Australia and then they had to go and build a special purpose vehicle and round up the money from private investors. Actually, now there's there's an open pool of funds that these VCs have. I think, um, you know, one of of the things um, that concerns me deeply, so that's all the positives, and now I always seem to make enemies in every interview I do, so one of the things (laughs) that um, concerns me deeply, though, is the amount of capital that sits in Australia now. It has risen so quickly yes. and you wonder where the the smart opportunities to invest that money, were they really big enough to absorb that money? And if not, have they been able to rise as quickly as the money has been available? And I think if we got to $2 billion of funds available to invest, maybe we would start creating some problems in the Australian ecosystem. Well, and in fact, I've put this question to VCs and they're like, you're absolutely right. We don't know how to spend it yet. So I think there's going to be, for a period of time, a go slowly approach. And you know what? That's it may mean make it a little harder for some companies to get funding, but I think if we all have a learning cycle around this, then you're right, it won't create problems because if suddenly $2 billion appears because every minister is running around with a checkbook and they're changing the laws so that people have to come in and put capital, and then we're creating as many problems as we might be relieving. Well, I worry heavily about retail equity crowdfunding. Again, I, like, I yeah. hate mail on that, but basically letting a retail investor invest money where they don't understand the risk profile makes me nervous. Listen, I, I think ASIC is going to be fettering the wheels of production on that for as long as they can. The SEC has functionally done that in America too, and it's because they're charged with protecting small shareholders, and I agree, it creates a fundamental conflict in what the reason to being is. All right, let's close by taking a look at where you think Catapult's going to be going. Now, again, because you're a public listed company, you actually have to be a little careful about what you tell me, but what's your vision for what this business looks like in five years? So the first thing I'd say is that even in the elite space globally, so we are totally dominant. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know exactly what market share we have, but it's way north of 50%. Um, The total market penetration is maybe 10% globally. That means 90% of every prospective client for us in the elite space is using nothing at the moment. We think that will asymptote towards 100% in the next five years. That is a big market growth opportunity. Our biggest challenge is execution. So we have to keep executing well mm-hmm. in order to retain our dominant position as the pie gets, you know, 10 times larger than it is today. So that's a pretty big opportunity. All right. What's your key to executing well? Uh, great people. That's it. I think, you know, I think there are three things that create great businesses. Um, big market size. Mm-hmm. So we've got that. Uh, luck. So we do our best on that and have rabbits well, for whatever make, it you is. Make, and you make your own luck too. And the third thing is um, just 
absolutely sensational people. And so that is what we spend most, that's what I spend most of my time focused on is getting those people into the business because the best way that you execute well is just get people who will execute extremely well and overcome the problems that appear. Uh, so that, that's, that's my view on that. Adir, thank you very much for being the first guest on Series 4 of This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. Nice to see you again. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. We really enjoy bringing you This Week in Startups Australia, and we've been really blessed by having some really amazing advertisers like Braintree and API Days to sponsor this program. If you are interested in reaching many thousands of Australians, core startup people, the entrepreneurs, the investors, the developers who are making things happen, then you want to advertise on our show. And I invite you to contact me, mpesce at gmail.com or mark at markpesci.com, and we can talk about advertising on This Week in Startups Australia. It's hard to be a tech entrepreneur, but let's not forget the investors. Sure. They sit there rolling around on their piles of money, rubbing their hands together like Montgomery Burns in the anticipation of incredible profits from that last placement. But then, you know, it rarely works out that way. For every Jason Calacanis on the ground floor of an Uber, there are a thousand tech investors who never see any returns anywhere close to that. So why do it? What possesses a tech investor. Why would anyone invest a penny in tech? Well, we have someone in the studio today who is going to help us answer that burning question. Yvonne Everett is an angel investor, a mentor, and a company director. As a member of Scale Investors, and remember, we've had Scale's managing director, Laura McAuliffe, on the show twice. As a member of Scale, she's made a number of angel investments and then became a non-executive director of Switch Automation, which is one of the Scale portfolio companies. So Yvonne is here today to tell us why, in the name of all that is profitable, would anyone invest in tech? Yvonne, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. I would just like to correct any misapprehensions. <laughs> I'm not rolling on a pile of dough. <laughs> um, I would consider myself a pretty average investor. And I think one of the interesting things about tech investing at the moment is as capital requirements have come down because of changes around running a startup with being able to do cloud, Amazon, all those kind of mm. things. It has made it within the reach of the average risk taker. You don't have to be super wealthy. So, I mean, so this is an interesting point that just starting off here, that the idea that because the barriers to starting a startup in terms of capital have dropped, the barriers for the kinds of people who could be a tech investor have also dropped. And we're not talking about, say, crowd investing yet, but we're talking about a level above that. Yes, I would call it a mid-level investor. Um, because I invest through scale investors, we pool our funds. Mm. So if the startup is looking to raise, say, 500000 if 20 of us put money in, that's not a significant amount of money. So if you're investing in startups, they fail at quite a high rate. Mm -hmm. You need to have a little bit of diversity. You need to build up a portfolio. Um, I've got a number in my head of how many companies I'd like to invest in just to get that bit of diversity. Let's say we're thinking of 10. If you're putting in a lower number, you can afford to do it through an organization where you go as a pooled arrangement. Mm -hmm. So what just at the basic sense, is attractive about angel investing? 
you meet interesting people, <laughs> really interesting people. <laughs> are, do we, are, is that word interesting in scare quotes? Because is that occasionally terrifying or is it just interesting? Interesting. <laughs> okay. And some of them are solving really pressing problems mm. that are fascinating to watch the journey. Um, switch automation is one that I'm particularly interested in. The building space is quite hot mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, sometimes they're sol- solving societal problems as well. Um, <clears throat> so that part's useful. I tend to think of it as I'm a bit of a risk taker, and I also tend to think of it as philanthropy. So I won't put money after a company that I'm not prepared to kiss goodbye. Oh, okay, so this is this is this is mad money in that sense. It's mad money. So either I think, well, it's a a very societal good cause that they're doing. One of the the scale portfolios is doing water filtration products which help out after disasters like the earthquake in Nepal. Mm. So that would be a very philanthropic investment and it would be nice to get a return and we might well get a return. Um, Other ones might be on the mad side of things. (laughs) Okay, so this is so if the draw is to meet interesting people which you do as an angel investor and i think there's no question that it's certainly at the startup end the very young startup end there's a lot of froth and interest and weirdness because the space allows for that how did you then i guess decide okay this is something that's interesting to me now i'm going to go do it how did you make that transition something else i might mention which you can't see on a radio broadcast is I'm not 25. Okay. I'm a little older than 25. I'm a geek. I love tech. That's right. the other reason why I do it. I think I would be in there starting a startup myself if I were 25, but not too many people will have me. There's quite a lot of ageism in tech. So investing is a second best option, and it's just as much fun. <laughs> and and I guess it's not just that, but you also, once you're an investor, you actually can ring in with the advice that all of your years of experience... You get to play provided. as well. You get you get to be part of the journey yeah. as well. And with investing, you can get to be part of the journey of more than one company, whereas with an entrepreneur, you need to, by definition, put all of your eggs in that boat. Right. Okay, so... so We've got this idea that you're attracted to tech, you're a geek, that you have the capacity and you want to have, as it were, a seat at the table. And this is an actual interesting thing because we, in a lot of ways, I don't think we think of tech investing as the way to be on the entrepreneurial journey. But you're actually making it sound like this is a way that you can be on the entrepreneurial journey. Yes. Okay, so when you've made that decision now, did you immediately come into scale investors or did you try your hand at other angel investing first? I started with scale investors, but I think it's important um, to look outside of that as well. I take responsibility for my own education. Scale has quite a good education program, mm. but I've always taken responsibility for my own education and for myself. So I have got involved within this broader startup community and I visited a few other angel groups as well, um, Innovation Bay, for example, in Sydney, and seen how they operate as well. I prefer to operate within scale because of the support structure that they provide. And this is the thing, and Laura and I talked long about this because it wasn't something that I was aware of until I actually had her on where you're sitting and, and, and sort of drawing out the scale story, that scale really provides a scaffolding not just for entrepreneurs, but for the angel investors. And that that is, in a way, the big missing gap in Australia because people may want to angel invest and not really have any idea how to do it right. 
I've looked at a couple of deals outside of scale, but in both cases, there was no lead investor. There's no strong lead investor in negotiating the terms. Whereas with scale, we have the support of lawyers. We have some pro forma documents that we use, and that gives you the scaffolding that you talk about. We also have quite a clear process around due diligence that we perform, that we communicate very clearly with the entrepreneurs, that's useful for the investor as well because it sets my expectations as to what time is going to be required of me, what I need to look at and what I need to do. Right. And also just if you've never been through this process before, if this is your first time at the dance, it actually tells you what's going to happen, which in a lot of ways is really important because then there are as few surprises as possible. Yep, that's exactly it. Now, how many investments, if I can ask, have you made through scale so three. far? So three different investments. So so one of them would be switch automation. Yes. Do you want yeah. can you talk about the others? Um they're all on the scale port- scale website. They're scale portfolio companies. Okay. Um and these are companies that you had a resonance with that you looked at and said, Okay, I understand this business and uh I cannot just I can bring value to these businesses. Um Yes, but you can't bring value to all of the businesses. The entrepreneur can't have every angel investor meddling. So, um, <laughs> meddling, offering have, advice. It depends on which to, side you're sitting on. You have to be passive for some of them. Right. Um, so the only one that I'm active in is Switch. How do you make the decision about which one you want to be active in and which one you you, you can trust that you can be passive in? When we invest through scale, we pick a lead investor mm-hmm. who will who will lead the deal, and the the deal the lead for the deal usually takes a board seat, and then the other people who, if they have anything to offer, will walk th- work through that board member. They'll talk to that board member, and she will take it to the entrepreneur. Okay, so they're really, in a sense, the representative for for all of the rest of the angels. They are. They filter. Okay, and so that was the role that you raised your hand around switch automation and said, "This is the role that I want." Not so much. It's also more of a case of we look at who's interested in the deal mm-hmm. and then who has got a good fit. In the case of Switch Automation, they're Sydney-based and I'm Sydney-based. Mm-hmm. So there was a fit for location. There also needs to be a fit for the type of people you are. Do you do you get on with the entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. Um, do you understand that the environment that they work in? Do you have something specific to offer them that they're looking for? So, so it's not a case of putting up your hand it's a case of ma- matchmaking then it's matchmaking all right and in this case and how long have you had the board seat at the switch at this point for one year you're listening to this week in startups australia we'll be right back hi this is mark pesci i'd like to talk about twist's newest sponsor api days australia API Days is a world-class conference. It's bringing together business leaders, entrepreneurs, and technologists to collaborate around building the business models of the 21st century, business models built from APIs. API Days is unique because it covers both the why and the how of digital business. One track focuses on business strategies, while the other track focuses on technology and implementations. APIs are the future for every business that wants to innovate, grow, and compete in the connected century. And API Days is the event where you learn how at Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Center on March 1st and 2nd. Find out more at au.apidays.io slash twista. This is Mark Pesci. We're here with Yvonne Everett, who is an investor, a mentor, and 
what I want to talk about now is you're a director, so you're sitting on the board of Switch Automation. Now, there's this sense that an angel investor sort of has this magic ESP about being able to pick the winners and then everything sort of goes dark and the firm either, you know, becomes a unicorn or it collapses or whatever. And, and Yvonne, it's not really like that, is it? In fact, there's a lot of activity that happens or that can happen to help make a startup successful. And this, I, I would think, is the reason that you're sitting on the board there, Right. There's a lot that happens behind the scenes that doesn't reach the media. Mm. Um, as a measure of time, initially when I joined the switchboard, I was probably spending a day a week on it to give people an idea of the time involvement, just understanding the space that they operate in, mm -hmm. trying to understand their industry, trying to understand the other players in the industry, where the industry was heading. Um, I could have relied on the entrepreneur to tell me that, but it's better to find that out independently. Then there's you need to understand um, their financing, all mm. the usual things. What's their run rate? Mm -hmm. When are you going to need to raise again? What will be a strategic raise? So there's quite a lot of work involved afterwards. So in a lot of ways, you're almost the early warning system so that in in a way that the, the, the founder can focus on delivering. A director is almost keeping their eye on the horizon then. That's the director's role in most companies yeah. and in startups too. Okay, so how does... How does the ebb and flow work with the founder? Because if you're doing your job right, you will be probably presenting more problems to them than marshmallows. <laughs> that probably sums it up. I think they need to get used to having a board <laughs> and the directors get need need to get used to their role. So there's quite a bit of negotiating that happens tacitly to start with. Right. Um, particularly with startups are not used to necessarily having a board. They don't always understand what a board does. Mm. Um, they possibly didn't read the shareholders agreement <laughs> clearly enough when they signed it. Um, so there's quite a lot that you need to learn, just basic governance that needs to happen to start with. And I mean, and a lot of that is is in the Corporations Act. A lot of that's in the shareholder agreement. And of course, when you are a director, you have a fiduciary responsibility yeah, for, right. you know, in Australia we call it trading solvently. You know, the company has to at all times be able to pay its debts. And if it doesn't, then the directors are the people who have to tell everyone, "I'm sorry, but we have to we have to wind up operations." Risk. As a director, your risk is a lot higher than it is as if you're just a passive investor. Um, but one thing that I try to remember is that the risk for the entrepreneur is even higher than it is for me. Mm. In this case, they're a director as well, so they're also exposed to trading insolvent, but they've put so much more at stake. So you need to respect that their risk at stake is a lot higher than yours. Mm. Mm. So... Uh, have you seen your relationship evolve over the time that you've been in serving as a director? And, and how, how have you seen it evolving? Absolutely, it has evolved. I think that you learn to understand the better. You learn to understand the people better as mm -hmm. well as the company better. Um, and then you need, you need to find out where it is that you can add value. And it's not always what you thought it was to start with. Ah. Um, in this particular case, Switch, they've got a really excellent technology area, excellent CTO, mm -hmm. and that was my key strength. But there's that's their role. They they run the tech. They know that best. Um, so I'm still figuring out exactly where it is. 
Um, another area, obviously, is exit, mm-hmm. something that, that you should always be focused on right from the beginning, even if the exit's only five to seven years away. Mm-hmm. You never know when it's going to come, but it's likely to be five to seven years away. So you need to be thinking about that and what relationships do you need to work towards an exit. What are... Um, I'm going to ask this question for both sides. What are the warning signs for you as a as a director that things are maybe not going well? And what are the warning signs maybe for someone who's in the CEO's chair as a founder thinking that maybe the the director's not going well? What are the sort of two sides there to that relationship? All of the things that apply to relationships apply to director roles as well, unfortunately. <laughs> no, that's, Com- that's a good bit of knowledge. Communication, right. trust, integrity. Um, that's really key. So if you're not being told things or if the director's not telling you things, you know, depending on which role you're sitting in, then there could be a problem and the communication problem is illuminating a larger problem in the business. You can't control how other people act. You can only control how you act. Mm. So I think you have to look to yourself first. Okay. And the... Uh, and so I guess then there's a continuous assessment of the relationship and that you can sort of test the health of the business by testing the health of the relationships that are in it. Startups are stressful. Yes. They, they're very stressful. And startup boardrooms can be stressful too. <laughs> I can tell that there is an entire mountain of stress of story there, but but we'll 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 move on a little bit. Now you have other interests. You're looking, I, I guess, for investments maybe in blockchain companies or fintech, and we're just starting to see maybe the first startups here, like Vend or whatever, start to work in that space. What do you think we're going to see in the next couple of years? Do you think we're going to see some block? Um, some block, some breakout blockchain startups or some breakout fintech startups out of Australia? I would love to see some blockchain startups out of Australia. I think there's a, a great opportunity in that space. Um, there's a lot of work going on. Ripple and other such yeah. things are very interesting. Um, living in Sydney, financial services are a big part of the economy. Yes. And we need to be looking forward and blockchain is a shining light of something that's going to change the way banks and things work. So if you had a magic wand and could say, look, this is the kind of blockchain startup that I want to see and that I would invest in, what would that startup look like? <sighs> payments is the obvious area. Right. Um, but there's a lot going on in the payment space. Perhaps blockchain in a different area, try and do something that everyone else is not doing. Okay. And I mean, I've seen smart contracts being used for trade smart and insurance and health and things like this. So you're, and, uh, so you're thinking that, in fact, if those other areas start to pop up, then those are going to be exciting prospects for investors to be looking at. Yes. What do you see for yourself as your role? This is your first formal sort of for-profit company board seat. If you charted a career for yourself for the next 20 years, where would you see your own role evolving? I want to build a portfolio. So adding to the portfolio is probably in the near term, Mm -hmm. within the next sort of three years. Um, I'd like to see an exit. (laughs) 
or two from my portfolio as well. <laughs> I think that's probably a precondition. Without that, the career goes dead. Have, have there been any scale exits yet? Not yet. They're too new. So we've been in operation for about three years. Okay. Um, so it's too new right. for exits. So, so presumably in the next two to three years, we'll start to see. Some. I would hope to see a successful exit. I yeah. think that's probably the precondition. You've got to get some money back yeah. and you need to earn a bit of credibility. Yeah. And you earn that with a successful exit. What does it take from the director to get a company into a successful exit? You know, what do you think is going to be asked from you as a director of switch automation, for example? Keeping your eyes on the horizon, so that and and challenging effectively, knowing what to, where to challenge and where not to challenge, where it's noise. So picking up the signals right. amongst the noise and challenging effectively and keeping your eyes on the long-term horizon. How do you develop that, that sense that uh, selects the, the signal and, and avoids the noise? That's always a good question. How do you learn that? Is it just practice or...? Maybe that goes back to the way we started, the interesting people. <laughs> so that, in fact, when you're listening to interesting people, what you're starting to hear is maybe some of the signal from the noise. I think so. Yvonne Everett, thank you very much for being our investor guest on This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. A few days before we recorded the show, we saw the passing of the great actor Abe Vigoda, who's most famous for playing the mobster Tessio in The Godfather. His last line made him immortal. Tell Michael it was only business. Well, Yvonne has reminded us that, yes, while it may only be business, it's still all about the relationships. And if you can't manage those relationships, you won't stay in business. Relationships are hard work. And even though you can only work on yourself inside those relationships, you always have to step up and make the effort. Always. Anything else opens the door to an entirely preventable failure. Businesses fail for enough reasons that they can't control. A failing working relationship, on the other hand, that's something that can be fixed. If you want to see photos of our guests or find links to the projects they're working on, drop by our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll also find earlier episodes, articles, lots more stuff. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Big thanks to series sponsors Braintree and API Days Australia because their support is making this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Walmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's a joy to listen to. And thanks to Adair Schiffman and Yvonne Everett for making the time to come onto this show. We'll be back in a fortnight with more great stories from Startup Land. Until